Matthew chapter 28, and we'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. You remember well that Matthew 28 sets the stage for us, that it includes some of the most significant events ever in human history. And the risen Christ meets his disciples on a mountain in Galilee, just like he commanded them to. In very solemn words, he says this. Beginning in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples proceeded into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had commanded them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And when Jesus approached them, he spoke to them saying, get a load of this, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh Lord, there are some texts that we stake our lives on. There's some texts, Lord, that are so foundational that we, that, we, that we define our lives around it. That it defines us, that it molds us and shapes us. And this is one of those texts, Lord. And we are grateful, O oh Christ, for the plan that's been unfolding in the world. We see things with such human eyes, with such strange fleshly human criteria and we do not see we do not see that all of reality is the uninterrupted domain of your activity O triune god we declare that you are eternal that you are invincible that you are uncreated you are uncaused O lord you had no beginning And you are sovereign over all things. And Lord, your sovereignty would be terrible news without your love. And your love would be terrible news without your sovereignty. But we get both of those things in you. You, Your sovereign, affectionate love that works all things, that gives your people what is best. And what is best for us is yourself. To be enjoyed with everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure forever. So we declare, O Lord the most obvious thing, that the most important thing in the universe is you as the supreme and central treasure of all things. And we declare, second, our salvation in Christ, which happens solely by sovereign grace alone. We give you all the credit for every ounce of of our salvation, every aspect of our salvation Knowing that, Lord, even this morning when we woke up believing in you, we did so because of an act of your kindness that you sustain us and uphold us and preserve us and empower us and you will cause us to persevere until the end. And we declare, number three, O God, our profound dependence upon you. We declare that we are but spiritual cripples and beggars of grace, spiritual paraplegics, And our only hope is your power through your word. And what we want, O Lord, we come to you as a distracted people, as a fearful people, as an anxious people, as a needy people, as a, in in some ways, a despairing people. Burdens weigh heavy on us, Lord. And Lord, we know that we come into this building not believing that the thing that we need most is to hear from the living God through his word. But that is what we need, and you are eager to meet with us even more, Lord, than we are to meet with you. So I pray for that. I pray for your intervention in this moment. I pray, oh, Father, that you would meet with your people, that you would minister to your people, that you would manifest yourself to your people. 
that the words of Christ from Matthew 28 would change us and transform us. And Lord, we're just people, we're just dust, as Psalm 103 calls us. And Lord, so we need your grace even in this moment. May this be a transaction that encourages, inspires, emboldens, and changes us always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You know, there are three things in life that are almost very nearly darn near impossible. Three things in life that are pretty much impossible. Number one, trying to climb a fence that is leaning toward you. Number two, trying to kiss a girl that's leaning away from you. And number three, it's darn near almost impossible to preach on a text in Scripture that everybody knows, everybody's read, and everybody already feels like they understand it. Those three things are really impossible. Now, the first, I've never tried. Second, it's none of your business. (laughs) And the third, I'm about to do right now. I'm going to preach on a text that everybody knows. You've read it. You've been there. You know it. You believe it. You love it. And that text is, of course, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The most concentrated, condensed, power-packed declaration of the mission of Christ given to the church found in the pages of Scripture. You know it, you've read it, you love it, you probably even have it memorized. And yet, like most texts in the Bible that are familiar to us, there is more there than meets the eye. Because you know that when Christ stood on that mountain in Galilee... After the resurrection, he declared to his disciples, all authority was given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. See, you know it. You know it. But the question is, do you know it? Because yes, that's about the Great Commission. But what we have to come to grips with this morning is that the Great Commission is not merely a mission for missionaries, but it is the meaning and ministry and mission of every soul that belongs to Jesus Christ. Because I know that when I say those words, Great Commission, most people automatically assume that I'm talking about cross-cultural missions, that this applies only to those who get on a plane and go overseas and spend their lives proclaiming the gospel in a foreign land and in so doing, they automatically assume that this text doesn't apply to them. And so I want to shift your thinking this morning just a little bit. Because what we find here in Matthew 28 is not only a radical call to reach the nations, but it is a summons to every soul that belongs to Christ to prioritize your lives around the global cause of God unfolding in the world, whether you stay or you go. So here we are, the final sermon on missions and great commission in this series, which you know we are calling impossible and invincible. And the reason why we are is because it's both of those things at the same time. It is impossible and it is invincible. It's impossible. For us as weak and needy people, as fallen, fragile, fallible people, it is impossible. But for the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, it is absolutely invincible. This is certain. This is guaranteed. This is going to happen. And yet it is going to happen precisely through the means of the church and through this church in particular, through preaching and proclaiming and praying and disciple-making, all the while suffering persecution. I want us to be 
a God-centered, Bible-saturated, Christ-exalting, soul-winning, missions-mobilizing church. That's why we moved down here to Texas. To give our lives to that. To help make this church a launch site for global ministry. To spend our lives together for the most loving and dangerous cause in the universe called the Great Commission. The only question is, at the outset, is are you ready for that? Are you ready to be the kind of home base we need to be? Are you ready to make this church a living factory making disciples that make disciples that make disciples, that plant churches, that make disciples, and on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and the plan is over. Because that's the only kind of church there is to be. The Bible does not conceive of another. And I believe by God's grace we can be that kind of church. And how we be that kind of church is by opening the sacred text and letting what's there in it produce a passion in us to reach the nations. And there is no better text for that than Matthew chapter 28. So here we go. I don't know if you have notes this morning or not. But either way, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see three foundational realities. Three foundational realities that you must know to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. Three foundational realities that you must know to finish the mission as disciples of Christ. And so foundational reality, number one, here it is. You must know the staggering declaration of Christ. You must know the staggering declaration of Christ. Because you remember, don't you, why it is the Gospels exist? Why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in our Bibles. These are, these are not just the, the exploits of an eccentric rabbi who took things a little too far and got himself killed. No, what the Gospels are, you understand, are the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. That the long-awaited Messiah and King has come to earth to reverse the curse and save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. That God himself has incarnated himself as a human being to save the human race from the inside out. That is the Gospels. The compelling resume of Jesus Christ to show us that he is a treasure worth giving everything up for. And when we get to Matthew chapter 28, we find some of the most gripping events in human history after the death of Christ, the deepest significance of which was lost on most people the disciples, they were heartbroken and disillusioned, cowering in fear off the grid in shock and despair, trying to figure out how to put the pieces of their lives back together again. You remember that Mary Magdalene and another Mary went to the tomb on Sunday morning to weep and pay their final respects. It was over. It was over. And yet strangely, you remember that the day before there was an earthquake. And they show up to the tomb, not only to find the stone of the tomb rolled away, but an angel there to greet them, sitting on top of the stone. And he announces to these women that Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. And their job was to tell the eleven disciples to meet him in Galilee, where they would see him with their very own eyes, risen and conquered. Conquer the grave. And this just changes everything. This changes everything. Because the, the events of three days ago, namely the, the slaughter of the one they thought was the Messiah, now all of a sudden they see this in a completely different way. They begin to see that the, that the death of their master was not a martyrdom. It was an atonement. That he wasn't a helpless victim who died in the clutches of his enemies. He was a victorious king who died for his enemies. So the disciples, they got that message and they immediately packed their bags and they head to Galilee to meet the only man in history ever to raise himself from the dead. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples proceeded into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had commanded them. It's interesting. The story ends where it first began, namely in Galilee. 
sticks of Israel, the boonies miles away from the hub of Jerusalem, and there the disciples proceed, not as a dejected group of losers who temporarily got sucked into some cult by a lunatic, but they go back to Galilee with the atom-charged hope and certainty that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited King and Messiah for whom Israel had been waiting for centuries. And now that he had risen from the tomb, these, these men would be transformed from these quivering little animals hiding in a hole somewhere into apostles. Blue-collar, middle-class, non-college degree, nobodies who would shake the world and bring the Roman Empire to its knees. And so they go to this prearranged meeting in Galilee where they would receive the greatest marching orders ever in history. And the fact that they meet Christ at a mountain should not be overlooked. This is, this is not insignificant. There's a theology of mountains in the Bible. I just want you to know that. You see, God all throughout Scripture is seen to use mountains as meeting places where he reveals himself in new phases of his plan. For instance, Exodus chapter 3. Yahweh appears to Moses in the form of a burning bush and reveals himself as, eh, yeah, I am, I am who I am. And he calls Moses, he summons him to go into Egypt and lead his people out of that country. And God revealed himself to Moses, where? On a mountain. Exodus chapter 20. Yahweh revealed the law to the people of Israel from a mountain. Matthew 5 through 7, Christ preaches the greatest sermon in history from a mountain. Luke chapter 9, Christ is transfigured before his disciples and reveals his, his blinding glory on a mountain. And the Old Testament is clear. When the Messiah comes and rules his global kingdom, he will rule that global kingdom from a mountain, Mount Zion in particular. And here, Christ reveals a global mission to save the nations from a mountain in Galilee. And when the disciples saw him, well, you can see for yourself what they did. Look at verse 17. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus commanded them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. They worshipped. They worshipped because what the heck else are you going to do? The Old Testament says to worship God and serve him only, and that's exactly what they do. They worshipped Christ because they understood this is no ordinary rabbi who did nice things for people, but the infinite God who came to earth and revealed himself as a human being, who this is, is God himself. Which is a staggering thing to wrap your head around, isn't it? That the eternal God, without ever ceasing to be fully God, became fully man. That the one they saw three days ago, this mutilated lump of bloody flesh hanging on a cross, now stands before them resurrected just as if he had never died in the first place. I mean, we have no categories to reconcile that, no way to make sense of that in their minds. And so we do not judge too harshly, do we, those who doubt it? Because it's not every day that you encounter someone who just rose from the dead. And so having crawled into the belly of death itself and blew it up from the inside, Christ emerges as the conqueror. And as these disoriented disciples bow down on their knees, Christ walks up to them and out of his mouth comes one of the most, if not the most, staggering declarations ever made in history. Verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. Now that I'm back from the dead, gentlemen, just want you to know I have all authority. And no doubt over the last three years, these disciples had a growing awareness that they were a part of something special, didn't they? 
But with this statement, all authority was given to me. With that statement, everything Christ ever said, everything Christ ever did, now connected together like an electric circuit. Oh, that's why. That's why he can heal diseases from another zip code. Oh, that's why he turned the sea into a sidewalk and walked on water. Oh, that's why. He changed the molecular structure of water into wine in an instant from across the room. Oh, that's why he can stop hurricane winds with his mind powers and make demons beg for his mercy and raise rotting corpses from their tombs because he has all authority. I mean, before the resurrection, it was hard to deny that this is God. But now, and with this statement, this was the only logical explanation And what this does is raise the question, doesn't it? What does it mean that Jesus Christ has all authority? What does it mean for our lives? And what does it mean for the Great Commission? There's two components of this declaration that we have to have a conversation about. Number one, there is the possession. And number two, there is the location. First, notice the possession. Jesus Christ has all authority. It's his There is no authority that he does not have. He has infinite, sovereign power by which he governs the universe and everything in it. He calls the shots. He rules the roost. He pulls the strings. It's his house. His rules, everything in the universe is under his sovereign jurisdiction. You understand what this means is he answers to no one. There's no one beyond him. There's no court of appeals that can challenge his decrees. No rule book, law book to which he looks. No no committee from which he obtains permission. No, he rules and he reigns and he guides and he governs and he leads and he loves and he brings every single moment to the exact outcome that he himself determines. He has all authority because he is God. Several years ago, I remember as a kid watching this episode of The Twilight Zone. This is now the third time that The Twilight Zone has come up in a sermon. It must have impacted me. But this episode of The Twilight Zone, there was a man who was cursed. Get this. He was a man cursed with controlling the world. That was his job, to uphold the world. And somehow, some way, he had constructed in his apartment this, this model, this replica of the world. And it was this contraption made of junk. Levers and pulleys and buttons and dials and all of it was just sort of barely holding together. And the episode was him frantically running around the room and constantly kind of holding things in place and pouring water here and turning this dial here and, and fixing this here and replacing this here and, and, on, and all of the disasters that happened in the world like floods and fires and hurricanes and yes, pandemics were because he could not get there fast enough. And the premise of the show, I guess, is that God, if he exists, is a little bit like that. And you see the pagan bent of our hearts? That's exactly where we want to go. We tend to envision God like that, frantic, panicked, stressed, and incompetent. And yet, with this declaration, we see that is not who Jesus Christ is. He has absolute, undisputed dominion that governs everything that comes to pass. My question is, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has infinite, sovereign power by which he governs the universe and everything in it? Do you believe that he governs everything that comes to pass, including every event in your life, including the events of sin and evil in the world. Do you believe this? Because you know what it's like. You know what it's like. I know what it's like when we are anxious and fearful and panicky and angry. And our thoughts are pulled into a thousand different directions because of our circumstances. What does Matthew twenty-eight eighteen have to do with that? It has everything to do with that. Because in those moments when your thought life is spinning absolutely out of control, what do you do in those moments? I'll tell you what you do. You 
preach to yourself with authority. In the midst of your circumstances, in those moments, you need to ask yourself a series of rhetorical questions that only have yes for the answer. I'm serious. You need to ask yourself these questions in those moments. Question number one, does Jesus Christ have all authority in heaven and on earth? Answer, yes. Question two, does Jesus Christ, is he far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come? Yes. Question three, does Jesus Christ uphold the universe by the word of his power? Absolutely he does. Question four, and is this moment of which the outcome seems so uncertain, is even this moment a sovereign design from his hand to trust him for the impossible? And will this in the end result in his glory and my highest joy? You know the answer. That's exactly what's going to happen. You see, we need to stop interpreting life through our circumstances and we need to start interpreting life through our theology and in particular through the fact that Jesus Christ has all authority because that is reality. But you noticed second, the location. We see the possession, we see the location, the location in which Christ has all authority. And where does he have all authority? What is his jurisdiction? And you know the answer. All Authority was given to me just in this tiny, small strip of land called the land of Israel. Is that what the text says? All authority in this particular hemisphere belongs to me. No, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. That's his jurisdiction. He rules it all. All things do the sovereign bidding of the Lord Jesus Christ, including COVID molecules that float in the air. The orbit of planets in galaxies that NASA will never see. And every roll of the dice in Las Vegas is determined by the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not one square inch in all the universe where Jesus Christ does not say, this is mine, and I rule it, and I have authority over it. Listen to this unbelievable quote by a man named Patrick Johnstone who said this ironically in an in a introduction to a prayer book on missions. Listen to what he says. He says, all the earth-shaking awesome forces unleashed on the world are released by the Lord Jesus Christ. He reigns today. He's in the control room of the universe. He is the only ultimate cause. All the sins of man and all the schemes of Satan must ultimately enhance the kingdom and glory of our Savior. Listen to his caution. We have become too enemy conscious. And we overdo the spiritual warfare aspect of our intercession. We need to be more God conscious. So that we can laugh the laugh of faith knowing that Jesus Christ has all the power over the evil one. My question is, do you laugh the laugh of faith? knowing that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the reason why I linger so long at verse 18 is because it is utterly foundational, not only to the personal application of our lives, but also the mission to which we are called, you see? This this is not only personally applicable to our faith, this is globally foundational to our mission. And there's so many implications of the supreme authority of Christ. I can't even fathom how many there are. I'll give you one. Here's one implication of what Christ just said. The fact that Christ has all authority means, means, get this, that whatever it is that's about to come out of his mouth as to what our mission is, is to drive and define everything you do. Everything. No matter what our profession, no matter what our career field is, the overarching purpose and goal of our lives is to make disciples. 
The question is, do you own this? Do you own this? Do you own the fact that your identity as a Christ follower means that you have been set apart for a sacred mission and sent into the world? Do you believe the fact that that the global cause of Christ should shape and determine all other decisions in life, social, financial, geographical, relational, and marital. Everything bows in allegiance to the cause. And speaking of that cause, this global cause to reach the nations, that's where Christ goes next, which brings us to the second foundational reality that you must know. The second foundational reality, number two, you must know the sovereign mission from Christ. You must know the sovereign mission from Christ. Because you see, the Jews of the Old Testament, they knew. They knew and they understood that salvation would reach the nations. And it would reach to the ends of the earth. Psalm 67, case and point. But the Jews in the Old Testament did not know the means through which that vision would become a reality. Here now is the means. Look at verses 19 and 20. All authority was given to Christ in heaven and on earth. Notice very carefully the words. Go therefore. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. How? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and by teaching them to keep all that I commanded. Again, notice, what is the connection between verses 18 and 19 that authorizes our mission? All authority. Christ has supreme power and authority. So what? Well, so It means that he has the right and authority to call every soul to bow in allegiance to him and to command you to reach them. Now, there's something you need to see here. Greek, of which about 20 of you are taking the class starting this Tuesday. But Greek is very precise in particular about main points and about sub points. And you see, if you look at, the, look at the text right now, look at your Bibles, the main verb in the text that demands our attention is the command to make disciples. That's the main verb in the whole text. That's the, that's the main entree on the table. That's the gravitational center of the entire text. And you see, all the verbs around make disciples are but complementary. They are there to add spice and flavor to the main entree on the table. Put it this way, main disi- make disciples is the main verb, and the other verbs express how to make disciples. And you notice, you notice that verb go. Christ commands us to go. What's, what's the significance of that? The significance is the sovereign mission of Christ is not come and see, but show and tell. This is show and tell. You see, our mission as a church is not to build fancy attractional programs to get butts in the seats. No, the mission of Christ is not to be a good person and then just kind of hope that people ask you about your church. They don't care. They don't care. Our mission is to infiltrate the darkness to go behind enemy lines, to stand with our toes on eternity and plead with ruined sinners to be saved and then take the next 10 years to disciple them so that they can go and make disciples. We must go. We must go to their desks, to their cubicles, to their neighborhoods, to their homes, to their countries. This is the active and vocal pursuit of people who are quite happy for you to leave them alone. And yet, what do we do? What is the mission to which we're called? And you already know the answer, but I want you to pretend like you don't and you're hearing it for the first time. Look at verse 19. Go and do what? Here it is. Make disciples. Make disciples disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to keep all that I commanded. And there it is. Make disciples. That is the work. That is the work to which you, all of you are called. And what does this mean? It means that while feeding the poor and housing the homeless 
and the sex trade and social justice and orphan ministry and abortion have their rightful place in the concern of the church. It's not that those things don't matter. They do matter, but those are not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is make disciples. But the question is, it raises the question, what is a disciple and what does it mean to make them? And Christ made it very plain what a disciple is, didn't he? In the most scandalous and provocative language, he told us exactly what a disciple is. For instance, here's a disciple. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up a cross and follow me. Translation, take up a cruel instrument of torture and death and follow me to the place of execution. Which means you love Christ so much that you're willing even to die for him if called to do so. Here's a disciple. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, yes, hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's in the Bible. Here's another one. Anyone who does not give up all his own possessions cannot be my disciple. It's in the Bible. Here's another one. The one who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. That is a disciple. And your mission in life is to make some of those. And so when you do the math and you put the pieces together, a disciple of Christ is four things. Here's a disciple. Four things. It means that Christ is one, your deepest treasure. Two, your ultimate significance. Three, your consuming identity. And four, your highest allegiance. That's a disciple. So my question for you this morning is, have you become one? Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Which means I'm asking, is he your deepest treasure? Is he your ultimate significance? Is he your consuming identity? Is he your highest allegiance? Because I just need you to know that Jesus Christ, if you profess to be a disciple this morning, I need you to know that he will not settle for second place. Ever. He will not merely allow you to add him to a life already cluttered full of countless distractions. He will not be reduced to being one more thing on a long list of things that compete for your affections. He will not permit you to define the terms, to define the relationship of what it means to follow him. No, to be a disciple means you take up a cross and you follow him. You follow him and you die. You die to self. You die to the world. You die to every other thing that you used to love more than him and you become a slave. Which is the most joyful life that can be lived, by the way. So if you don't know him, if you're not a disciple this morning, I just want you to know Christ stands right now. Ready? Arms open, full of love, full of pity, ready to save, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to any sinner who comes to him hungry and bankrupt. My question is, if you have not done so this morning, will you humble your pride and yield yourself to the king as his disciple? It literally makes zero sense to wait for another day. But you notice, you notice, of course, to whom, of whom it is we are to make disciples. Look at the text. Who, who are we to make disciples of? Make disciples, he says. Panta ta ethne. All of the nations. Think about this. Tribes, tongues, nations, ethno-linguistic people groups. Our concern is not merely our little church. It's not our Homes. It's not merely our neighborhoods. It's not merely our cities. It's not merely our country. As believers, we bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. Why? Because the entire human race 
is under the curse of sin and the wrath of God. And unless something supernatural happens, the entire human race goes to hell forever. Here now is the plan. This is the plan. And I'll have you know that when Christ said to make disciples of all the nations, that wasn't like a new wrinkle in the plan. It wasn't like the disciples were, oh, wait, seriously, the nations? We never heard this before. We never even, we've never conceived of all the nations. No, when Christ made this declaration, this was, this was the culminating expression of what had been building and brewing for centuries. Don't you see, from the beginning, God had a plan that would undo what Adam had done to reverse the curse and take the rebel planet back and fill it with worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And all Matthew 28 is, is the means by which that happens. And get this, we are the means. You understand, don't you, that the people who will be there in the kingdom will be there precisely through the witness of the church. But here's that thing about that command to make disciples. This is very important. For whatever reason, we are dangerously pre-programmed to see that command to make disciples merely as a call to share the gospel. And although it includes that, it's not only that. Because the reality we have to come to grips with this morning, listen very carefully, is that making disciples is not just evangelism. Get this, it's the intentional, faithful investment of the word of God into your lives after you evangelize them. Do you see? In other words, it's the entire process from conversion to maturation, from baby to maturity, where you intentionally invest the word of God into someone's life for years and years, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded. And the proof is in the putting of the text. Look what he says. Make disciples of all the nations. How? How do you do that? What does that look like? First, by baptizing them. And second, by teaching them all that I commanded. Don't you see? Conversion is just what gets you in the door of this spiritual fitness center called the local church. But once you get inside, there should be, there ought to be dozens, dozens of spiritual fitness trainers ready to come alongside you and make you spiritually fit and trim with Christ-exalting maturity, which is what the Bible calls discipleship. And notice, notice the two means that Christ gives of how to make disciples. This is how you make disciples. First, after they get saved, what do you do? You dunk them. By baptizing them by immersion into water. Which for me raises the question, why is baptism part of the process? Why is baptism such a big deal that Christ would include it in this global mandate to make disciples, right? It, it, it's a, it's a five-minute thing that happens. Why is that such a big deal? Because, I'll have you know, we have diluted baptism in our day. We have literally watered down the deepest significance of what baptism is because you see how we typically treat baptism as sort of this all about me personal milestone or as some mystical thing that gets us in touch with the supernatural. It is not that. It is not that. Rather, baptism is two jarring realities all at the same time. First, baptism is a dramatization. And second, Baptism is a declaration. It's a dramatization, and it is a declaration. First, it's a dramatization. Meaning what? Meaning, get this, baptism, listen very carefully, is a dramatic reenactment of what happened to your soul when you got saved. When God raised you, as it were, from the spiritual dead. That's why the posture is what it is. You go down into death. You come out of death into new life. Baptism doesn't do anything magical for your soul. It is a vivid illustration of what has already happened to your soul when you got awakened by the gospel. 
And the water, the water is but an illustration, is but a prop that illustrates the washing of regeneration and the cleansing of forgiveness. You were dead. Now you're alive. This is what happened to me. Watch this. But second baptism is a declaration. It's a declaration. It's a declaration that you belong to Jesus Christ and the community of the redeemed. That you have renounced all other gods and lords and kings and saviors and treasures. And that you are joining a battalion of souls whose supreme allegiance and treasure is the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Because they say, don't they? They say, blood is thicker than water. And that's true. Unless, of course, you're talking about the waters of baptism, in which case you are talking about the most significant declaration that could possibly be made, which if you have not been baptized as a believer, it is time to declare your allegiance. But then you notice the second means of making disciples, and this is an absolute deal breaker. I mean, this is central to everything that Christianity is about. Look at verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How? What does that look like? How do you do this? First, by baptizing them. Here it is. Second, by teaching. By teaching. By teaching them all that I commanded. Because the question is, do you want this church to be a healthy church that changes the world? And I know you do. Do you want this church to be a launch site for global ministry? And I know you do. And I just want you to know you can have that. You can have that. Everything that you've ever dreamed in your wildest imagination for our church is literally theirs for the taking. And how that happens is through the careful, faithful, intentional investment of the word of God into one another's lives. Or as Christ calls it here, Teach them to keep everything I commanded. What's he talking about here? What, what, is it, what does he mean? What is he talking about when he says to, to do this? I'll tell you what he's talking about. He is talking about a commitment. Listen carefully. A commitment by a community of saints like us to cultivate a profound level of spiritual care that not only gets converts but nurtures those baby converts over the long haul with years and years of word-centered investment into their lives. It's called discipleship. It's called redemptive relationships. All it is, is each member owning the spiritual growth of one another as their top priority. Because I'll just tell you, in America, we have far too long been infatuated with the evangelism model of a big event haven't we kind of the tent meeting thing well after a moving gospel presentation people are invited to raise a hand to sign a dotted line to walk down an aisle and then these grandiose claims are made about how many conversions there were And we get really excited about that, and and that's okay. We can and we should get excited because the gospel was proclaimed, hopefully. I mean, God's doing something, and for that we can and should be glad. However, however, there is a question that should come into our minds about two and a half seconds after we hear about those conversions. And here's the question we should ask. Will those people be discipled and cared for by thoughtful, intentional, word-centered people in the context of a local church? Is there anyone there to take this premature baby into the NICU of the local church and lovingly feed them the milk of the word and wrap them in the warm blankets of love and fellowship? Is there anyone there in the local church to teach them all that Christ commanded? Because if not, I'm just being honest, I suspend my enthusiasm. 
This is the model. This is the mission. Not just to make disciples, but disciples who make disciples, who make disciples that plant churches, that make disciples. And on and on it goes until all of God's elect are reached and history is over. Now, what this looks like and how to do it, I'm going to preach on this in a couple weeks, but let me give you one implication for your lives of this. You can tell, can't you? I mean, you can tell that the word of God is central to everything the church is about, right? That's why Christ says, make disciples. How? By teaching them to keep all that I commanded. Teaching. The word of God is central to this whole thing. God's plan for history literally unfolds through the proclamation of the word, not just from up here, but through the mouths of you to one another. Mark my words. That's exactly how the Great Commission unfolds, just like that. What that means is the strength of any church, listen carefully now, the strength of any church to advance the plan of salvation is profoundly dependent upon the people in that church being richly indwelt by the word of Christ. A missions-minded church is a word-filled church where hunger for God's word is weak, zeal for missions will be weak. And so the most loving service that you can render to another human being is to have that IV drip line relationship to the word of God in radical dependence. That's the most loving service that you can render to another human being. Don't you see time in the word, time reading God's word every day? That's a great commission issue. That is not only for our personal devotional delight. We do it also for the sake of the nations so that you have something to give. And that brings us finally, and I suppose I should add very quickly, to foundational reality number three. You must know the sustaining consolation in Christ. You must know the sustaining consolation in Christ. So now with his authority declared, his mission given, Christ now moves to give his disciples the most, the greatest source of courage and consolation that could possibly be given. Look finally at verse 20. He says, your mission is to make disciples by baptizing them. And by teaching them to keep all that I commanded. And here it is. Behold, I am with you. Literally, all the days until the end of the age. That, that is a sustaining consolation. And here's the thing. We, we love family heirlooms, don't we? Do you, do you have family heirlooms passed down? We love family heirlooms. We love rare objects passed down in a family generation after generation and the longer they last, the more sacred they become, right? This is a family heirloom. This global mission is a sacred heirloom passed down through every generation of Christians from the builder of the church himself. This wasn't just for the 11 disciples immediately bowing down in front of Christ. It was for them and for those they discipled and for those they discipled passed down in history from our comrades on a sea of blood. And it's been passed down to us today in 2020 in the state of Texas. And I don't know if you know this or not, but, but, but embedded in that statement, I am with you, is a claim to be God. Did you know that? Jesus Christ just claimed to be God there when he says, I am with you. You know how we know that? Because in Exodus chapter 3, remember, he revealed that his name was I am. I am who I am. And Christ picks up on that name. And in the Gospel of John, he makes those I am statements. You remember those? I am the Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And here he says, I am with you. Exact same Greek construction. And so what he's doing is taking the most sacred, provocative name that exists and inserting it into his promise to be with you. All that I am as Yahweh, I am with you. Meaning what exactly? 
What does it mean that Jesus Christ is and will be with us? Well, listen carefully. This, This doesn't just mean that he authorizes our mission. It means as God, he is the decisive force in our mission. He not only only bought his bride from every nation, he saves his bride from every nation through the proclamation of the gospel. This isn't just moral support here. This is the sovereign power of his perpetual presence. He is with us. He is among us. He is here right now as we speak with us, in us, and through us, guaranteeing that his plan cannot possibly fail. And yet you ask, well, how is he with us? What form does that take? What does that look like? He's there. He is here always in and through his word. Wherever the sacred text is read and proclaimed and trusted and delighted in, there is the risen Christ among us. And I'll have you know that this presence of Christ this power and presence of Christ, this is just as real for us today as his physical presence was for the disciples. This is not a deluded presence. He is with us because I know how you feel because I say the same thing as you. We say, don't we? I'm not very smart or educated. I don't know very much. To which Christ replies, that is irrelevant. I am with you. We say, well, I'm not very talented, and I don't really have a lot to offer people, to which he replies, that is not the point. I am with you. We say, I'm really scared, and I just don't have the courage to proclaim the gospel to lost people, to which he replies, do not be afraid. I am with you. We say, I really struggle and I sin a whole bunch and I've got a lot of issues in my life and I am a mess to which he replies, did you not hear what I said? I am with you. And he's with us all the days until the very end of the age, which is what? the kingdom. When all of God's elect are saved and history is no more, Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ rules his global kingdom from a throne in Jerusalem. This is certain. This is guaranteed. This is going to happen. And Jesus Christ will be with us every single step of the way to make absolutely sure that it does. And when it does happen forever, we will declare worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I've prayed this so many times and maybe every day for the last year and a half for this church, but I plead with you for awakening. An awakening of the likes of the 18th century, like that one, but without the charismatic chaos and excess. I pray for conversions, for the awakening of dead souls, either some who are still in our midst in this room or maybe others out there through their means. Lord, number two, I pray for reformation, that we would be a reformation church holding fast to sound doctrine as new reformers. I plead with you for renewal, spiritual renewal, that we'd have renewed passion in our hearts for your glory, for your word, for your church, and for your plan. And I pray for transformation, that we would be transformed through the proclamation of your word, both from the pulpit and through the mouths of one another. Please, O Lord, work in our midst. Help us be that launch site for global ministry that we so long to be. We thank you so much for this time together. And we look forward to how you will work in our lives, always for your glory, using this little flock to advance the global plan of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Well, I am I'm excited for multiple reasons. And one of the uh, four of the reasons why I'm excited all come in the form of announcements of, of things that we have going on. First, number one, uh, you need to know that there are a, a number of Bible studies, uh, small groups that are, that are coming up. There are two in particular to which I want to draw your attention. Both of them are ladies' Bible studies, and I am excited about this. Number one, there is a uh, Joshua Bible study um, that is happening where you guys can learn, um, see the information there on the screen, um, where you can learn about the, the book of Joshua and, and how what we see there transforms our perspective in the present. You have to understand that, that what we see in the Old Testament happening is foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future. Joshua is not just ancient history, it is salvation history. There will be, uh, it is a way to, tri- pr- uh, um, to fuel our passion for the mission of Christ. So um, you can uh, uh, be a part of that. You can see the information there. Oh, go back one. Uh, you can see there that it will start September 16th, Wednesday, 645, uh, bi-weekly on Zoom. And again, you see the contact information there. This is all the website. So anything you don't see here, just please check the website and you can be available that way. The second Bible study is called Quieting a Noisy Soul. And uh, Sarah is, uh, could tell you more about this, but, but really what this is, this is biblical counseling. So the, the studies are equally great. They just have different purposes. This one here is designed to really teach us how to do biblical counseling to our own souls because who here doesn't struggle with having a noisy soul? Anyone? We are all noisy in our hearts. And what we need is we need to see the glory of God. And so this uh, study will help you learn how to wrangle, get control of your thought life and, and help you to, um, to really uh, uh, rely on the, the supreme power of God in those moments to think on truth. So uh, register online. The cost is $40. It's, uh, it, it, once you're done with the class, you'll, you will have said $200 would have been worth it. It will be fantastic material. So uh, all ladies are welcome. Both Bible studies, uh, please feel free to sign up. The second one is uh, we love to equip our people. We love to give you resources in your, in your hands. So we do books of the month. Two books that we're doing this month. First one is Side by Side. You're going to hear the phrase a lot, redemptive relationships. You're going to hear that a lot. And what that means is that's simply what the Bible describes as authentic biblical relationships where, where I walk into a room and I see Tommy or I see Paul and we make eye contact from one another, with one another from across the room and he knows and I know his spiritual growth is my top priority and my spiritual growth is his top priority. Same thing with Tommy, with all of us. And this book, Side by Side, will help you know how to transform friendships into redemptive relationships. If you want to learn how to do that better, and you should, I recommend that book. Also, in the fall, we're going to be uh, after the next, I'm going to do three weeks on vision, the next three weeks. After that, we're going to be in the letter of First John. So to help you with that, I thought, okay, well, let's get a commentary. Let's get a, a study tool to help you understand the letter of First John. So each of those are $10. It's a bargain for both. They're out there. Uh, if you want to know the word of God deeper, I encourage you to snag those. Next, we've got a few things going on here. Uh, don't forget fall equipping classes. Okay, all of these, all of these, let this be for the record, all of these classes are uh, available to register online. Okay, so you've received multiple uh, links. Erica will send those again. We will hound you with links until they're coming out of your ears. And so we'll send you those again. Uh, Greek starts this Tuesday in that room right across, right across the way there. It's a, it's a uh, what are those things called? They're like separate classrooms. Portable, thank you. Uh, English, Jared. So uh, be right there. And uh, also starting next Sunday. So next Sunday at 9 a.m., we've got three classes going on. We've got Genesis, which will be in here. We've got marriage, which will be upstairs. And we've got fundamentals of the faith, a basics of doctrine class, which will be, there'll be a sign out in the foyer that'll tell you where to go. Okay. So lots of opportunities to be equipped. That's what elders are responsible to do to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's why we do this. I think this is last but not least. Um, uh, yes, so tonight, tonight at 5 p.m., from 5 to 6 p.m., we're going to do a family uh, meeting and prayer summit. We're going to kind of update you about the fall, things that we're thinking about, directions we're going, uh, emphases that we are, are bringing to bear on the church, and then we'll spend some time praying about those. So one of those things will be we are actively in search of a building. We don't have anything yet. But we are looking at buildings, and, and I can update you on the progress of that. So we are thinking about that. And, and so, um, again, 
the formula is if communication is love, we need to communicate with you a whole bunch. So that's, that's our efforts to do that. We'll communicate with you tonight via Zoom. You will receive the link again in the afternoon, and it's also in the email you received yesterday. So Erica is to be uh, thanked and applauded for, for her constant help in communication. Um, so grateful, grateful for that. Okay, so that's tonight, 5 p.m. Uh, be there. Um, until then, let's stand for a closing benediction, and then we're dismissed. May God the Father who chose us, God the Son who purchased us, and God the Spirit who sustains us with his power, may they empower us to live lives that put the glory and worth of Jesus Christ on display for the advance of the global cause of God. You're dismissed. We'll see you tonight on Zoom, 5 p.m.